Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name's Don Nutbeam. I'm a professor of public health at this university, and I'm going to try to manage this evening's event. Um, before we begin our um, proceedings, though, before we, we begin the Sydney Ideas um, session, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the great Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, um, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever in the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Um, the structure uh, uh, of the evening is that um, I'm going to engage the panel with some questions, and I've asked um, individual members of the panel to take a lead in responding to uh, those questions. It's actually one single question, uh, but approached from uh, a number of different perspectives. I've asked one member to uh, speak for between uh, five and seven minutes, preferably less than seven minutes, um, and, an and another member of the panel to offer a quick response. Uh, and what I'd like to do is to go through uh, those sequence of inputs from our um, panel members, um, and then at the end of that, uh, I'll uh, open up uh, to questions uh, from the floor. Um, so let me introduce the panel. I'm just going to do it um, in alphabetical order. So um, firstly, uh, um, or in an order, sorry, uh, we have the Honourable um, Professor Adrian Piccoli, the Director of the Gonski Institute for Education at the University of uh, New South Wales. Adrian's second in. Um, uh, some of you will recognise him from his former role as Minister for Education uh, between April 2011 and January 27. 17 in both the O'Farrell and Baird ministries. And uh, he holds degrees from the uh, Australian uh, National University. Uh, Professor Sir Eric Thomas, Eric at the end there, um, will already, I suspect, be known to some of you who've been to the conference today. Um, so um, Eric was Vice-Chancellor of the University of Bristol from 2001 to 2015. Um, uh, and among many um, significant roles that uh, Eric uh, held during his tenure as Vice-Chancellor at Bristol, um, he was the uh, President of, the, of Universities UK, which is the national representative organisation for universities in, uh, in the United Kingdom uh, between 2011 and 2013, and also the Chair of the Worldwide Universities Network uh, from 2003 to 2007. Both Bristol and the University of Sydney are members of the uh, Worldwide Universities Network. Uh, Raj Logaraj, here. Um, Raj, um, Raj's career spans law and investment banking, although he did share with me his career began um, as a, a lecturer at the National University of Singapore in law. Uh, but uh, the main part of his career has been in law and investment banking. He serves as a director um, of an advisor to companies, some of, the, some of which are publicly listed, based in Australia, Israel, and the United Kingdom, particularly involved with cybersecurity, telemedicine, data analytics, agribusiness, um, and healthcare. 
Raj has also served on university committees and government councils in Australia and overseas and holds degrees from the National University of Singapore and the University of Sydney. Um, and finally, Cynthia. Um, uh, Cynthia, uh, Professor Cynthia Bosnich Antichevich is a professor at the Walcock Institute of Medical Research at this university, the University of Sydney, um, and is internationally recognized uh, as a leader in the field of respiratory medicine um, and is uh, um, uh, very engaged with a, a major team of research um, at the Walcock Institute. So um, the, the form of the panel discussion in this first part um, is that uh, I will ask um, each of the panelists in turn uh, the question, what should universities be? Um, so the very open question, um, uh, but one that's future oriented. Um, uh, wh where, where, do university, where are universities heading? And uh, what I've asked is that uh, each of the panelists um, offer a response to this question from a slightly different perspective. Um, uh, and in particular, I've asked them to respond from the perspective of students, from the perspective of the government, the academy, business, and um, private donors and philanthropists. What should universities be from those different perspectives? And to start the evening off, um, uh, I want to ask what universities should be from the perspectives uh, of students. Uh, and I've asked Eric to respond first to this, and then uh, Raj to um, offer a, a commentary by way of response to Eric. Well, uh, first of all, um, I do feel a little bit uncomfortable as a 65-year-old grandfather <laughs> determining what universities should be for students who are two generations below me. I know what I thought it should be, and I'm going to hypothesize what I think students feel it should be, but can I give my apologies to any students in the audience if I get that particular perspective wrong? I've written down here that I would have thought that the first thing a student would think is that the university should in some way, their experience, be transformative. In other words, that at the end of their university experience, they should be a different person intellectually, wider and deeper, and possibly personally, than they would have been if they had not had that particular experience. And that certainly was one of the things that I expected from my university when I went there. I think they think that the university should be a place where they get good teaching. And by that I mean inspirational, uh, focused teaching that makes them intellectually stretched, that uh, means that they will come across ideas that they wouldn't have done beforehand. Maybe in professional areas they'll get new knowledge that they wouldn't have had beforehand. Um, but they will get good, focused teaching by staff that are actually um, responsive to their needs and that they will be getting feedback that's decent and in time and they will get the idea that they're actually valued partners in the university experience uh, and not just customers. They want to be in a place, as I say, where they are valued and respected. And I think that's such an important part of it because it is amazing how quickly students pick up those parts of the university where they're not valued and respected uh, and how quickly you get feedback about that. They want to have a place where they will be given some of the skills needed for the workplace. 
In the professional degrees, that may well be a whole raft of skills, medicine, for example, that I experience. But uh, it is an important part of their development, I'm sure, for students now that they know that they need certain skills for the workplace, team building, uh, presentation <coughs> skills, and that some of those are going to be given to them uh, in, in, in the university. I don't think either they or employers expect to be fully turned out, fully differentiated uh, employees at the end. I think they'd like an interesting, uh, if not outstanding, academic and social peer group uh, in their university, the people that they're traveling this intellectual journey with. I think they would like good facilities. Now, so I find this a difficult one. In the 1960s, there was a very famous set of lectures given by A.J.P. Taylor on television for the first time ever. And he just talked on television for 45 minutes about historical uh, issues. And they were riveting. And, they were, and the fact that people used to say, I would go to hear A.J.P. Taylor in a tent. So I think if you had the balance between I want the glossiest, fabulous building known to man or beast, or I want the best teacher, they'd probably go for the best teacher, even if it was in a bit of a tent rather than in a modern building. And I think the last thing that they would like is excellent support across the board. So that's not just academic support or educational support, but all the other kinds of support that a student needs. Uh, and that, um, uh, that, that, that it's there and available for them uh, and freely given. So that at the end of it, at the end of their three or four years, they really do feel as if they have been through a journey that has transformed a, a, a major part of their life. Thank you very much, Eric. Raj. Um, thank you, Don. The fact is that today, I, I took the liberty of preparing some notes uh, in response to what Eric was going to say. Although I haven't had the benefit of, of hearing <laughs> from Eric prior to this. Education faces challenges entirely different to what they were 20 or 30 years, or even 40 years ago. Things are changing so fast and the future so dynamic, so volatile, so uncertain, so complex, and so ambiguous that it's harder to identify the causes of things and come up with solutions before another future unfolds. It's a world where it's hard to identify the landing points which will lead us when we hear the stories about the seemingly inexorable rise of China and India and Indonesia, coupled with the technological advancements we see in the world today. It's a world where the young are creating their own jobs through startups and innovation and shaping their own future. However, we can anticipate the shape of things to come and have a university that can embrace and respond to these changes. In my view, university education needs to recognize the diversity of talents and strengths among the young, particularly their aptitudes and demonstrated interests. Success, in my view, should not be measured by international rankings, academic grades, or employment outcomes, but the long-term resilience of students and their willingness to take risks, to innovate, and to create. I see universities getting somewhat obsessed about preparing students for their first job opportunity. In part, this is because graduate employability is important in university rankings. 
Universities should continue to stretch students to think outside of their comfort zone, to get used to taking positions and arguing their case respectfully and understanding how to validate their positions in a convincing manner. This does, in my view, a, a great deal to mature students. It builds both their independence of thought and intellectual confidence, which will equip them well for a long time. In parts of this region that I'm familiar with, I see an unquestioning acceptance of what a lecturer says. Contrast this with what happens in some schools elsewhere. If you say to an Israeli child, two plus two equals four, chances are it's likely that she or he will ask why. Contrast this with parts of Asia where the same formula will be accepted uncritically. Indeed, the student will commit it to memory by root learning. A university education is more than a set of courses. It is about trans transforming, as Eric was saying, young adults so that they can make a big difference to society once they get on with their jobs. And there are several ways of ensuring that this happens, and if time permits, I'll be happy to talk more about them. Thank, thank, you. You, thank you very much, um, uh, Raj. So I'm tempted to say um, there was a, a, a good deal of overlap between what you and Derek uh, both said, um, particularly about developing trans, uh, tra uh, um, transferable skills about the experience being transformative. Um, what's, what's stopping us, Eric, or any, any member of the panel got a view on, you know, so, so why doesn't it feel like that for so many of our students? Anybody want to comment on that? Eric? Well, I, I can only comment from a UK perspective, sure. Don, and so that's quite important. I think what happened, I think that when I went to university, by the way, that, that was one of the real prime ambitions of the university. It was incredibly student-centric. And what happened was that the research agenda in the United Kingdom drove a research uh, ambition for about two decades that kind of slipped the student as, uh, as sort of not quite in the same primacy. And uh, I think that really affected the relationship between the student uh, and the university and what the university staff were made to think as well as thought had to be important. That is now being redressed. And, uh, and I think that that's uh, one of the most important shifts and changes that have occurred for a long time. Now, universities in the UK are becoming more and more and more powerfully student-centric, mm. and there's a much more appropriate balance between uh, research and the education mm. side of things. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with that, because if I've, I've had recent experience in the UK system. I, I don't observe the same here, I think I would, uh, I would say at this point, in our evolution as universities. I don't think there's been that rebalancing. Um, but uh, can I just say, we'll come back to that um, uh, as we progress through the evening, and I really sincerely hope we'll hear, hear from some of our students who are here this evening about how this tallies with their own experiences. Cynthia, did you want to I, comment? I'd yeah. like to say, and I, I, I should just say that my viewpoint is based on um, the fact that before I was uh, in a research institute where, I was, where I'm basically doing research full-time, I spent 13 years in a faculty, um, a, a, one of the health faculties, where obviously we were training um, 
health-related students to go out into practice. And I think, I mean, it's, it's very, very complex because students come to us these days with living experiences that are evolving as we are actually also engaging in the education of those students. The expectations of those students at the end of their degree is not what the expectation of students used to be 10, 15 years ago, even just 10 years ago. And it's not only driven by, um, some of it's driven by economics, some of it's driven by workplace opportunities, um, it's probably certainly driven by the number of students that are competing um, or graduates that are competing for those jobs. So I think all of this is impacting on where that graduate is at the end. And I don't know how much we have actually modified we, what we do, given that all of this is happening in parallel to what we're trying to do. I, I think maybe we need to consider that a bit more. So can I, can yeah, I ask please. a question? So why do we have, I mean, I presume it's historical, but why do universities do research and teaching of undergraduates? And should they still do both things? Well, the, the, the stock answer for that is that you teach better if you come from a research-informed environment. For If we're just focusing on undergraduates rather than knowledge production per se, uh, which is in and of itself would be regarded as a perfectly acceptable activity and that by doing research in um, you, 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 you get teachers who are at the cutting edge of, the uh, of, of, of their knowledge production and therefore there is a, a level of teaching that, um, uh, that is different than if it's a non-research environment. Now I've, I think I can say that that remains an untested hypothesis. Uh, it, it might be quite difficult to know how to test it, by the way, but uh, I think it remains an untested hypothesis. Um, and I, I think we, uh, what we need to do is to get the balance actually right. I mean, I was fascinated. If you want to be a professor at Princeton, you have two interviews. You have one interview about your research, and you have another interview about your teaching. You cannot avoid teaching at Princeton. You have to do module 101 in year one, even if you've got a Nobel Prize. And I think what we need to do is to give that kind of underlining to the importance of teaching. Uh, and then, and then, uh, then you will get great researchers and great teachers together. And I think that's, uh, so you can fail to get a chair at Princeton because your teaching interview wasn't good enough. So you said it was the stock answer. So what, what do you think? Uh, do you think it should change? I mean, if that's the stock answer. Well, okay. If you well, as, right. as, as a vice chancellor, right, having to run a university, I want the brightest and best staff known to man or beast, right? And there's no doubt about it that a lot of the brightest and best are also the brightest and best at research. Therefore, by having a powerful research environment, I attract the brightest and the best. And therefore, I would expect them to be good, and, and, and many of them are. I think there's a myth, the idea that a good researcher isn't a good teacher. I, I, I just think that's a wonderful kind of myth. And that they will teach in a, in a, in a vivacious and exciting way uh, because they're so motivated by their, 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 their desire to research and create new knowledge in the subject. So it, it's, it's a combination that gets me the very best people, I think, or a quantity of the very best people, for, for the mission of the university. 
Okay, that's I'm, from a I'm, teacher's. I'm, I'm, I'm going to interrupt because I, I re I'm really sorry because um, we're really getting going, but we could take the whole evening up, I think. Uh, and I'd just like to get some other perspectives on what universities are about because we can, we'll, I have a feeling we'll definitely come back to this uh, when we go to the open forum, but I need to get to the open forum if that's okay. So sorry to, to cut you off, but I am coming to you next, Adrian. Um, and, and not surprisingly, given your political background, I wanted to ask you if you could give us a perspective from government as to what universities should be. Yeah, uh, look, and it, it kind of goes to and the I, question. I wrote in Adrian's note, by the way, government meaning the representative of citizens and taxpayers. That's right, that's <laughs> right, that's right. I, it could, partly goes to the question to Eric about what I see are the, the, the poor drivers of what happens in universities. And I, and I must forgive, you must forgive me that I've been involved in a university for a very small amount of time. But maybe sometimes when you start, you know, when you walk into a house the first time, you, you notice the... You notice the dents in the wall. Once you've been there for a while, you don't notice it uh, anymore. But in my sense, from a, from, a, from from what governments want, what the public want, what taxpayers want, um, what drives public opinion about what universities do, uh, I think the the thing that needs to be changed here is what drives what universities do. Uh, it, it's driven by the changes to funding arrangements. So you know there is a motivation to enrol international students, full fee full fee paying students from some universities. It's as, it's enrol as many students as possible because it's the major source of revenue. And unfortunately, that does in, it's in some cases drive down quality. From an academics perspective, um, you know, I've, and I've heard it said many times that the priority is um, um, you know journal articles and citations. And that's what drives the motivation of research and the, and, the types, and the types of work that gets done in universities. Now, these are all vast generalisations. I, I appreciate that. But when you think about what the capabilities of universities have to provide not just, not just teaching but the research capabilities they have, I'm just not sure that the financial and other motivators within the system actually lead it to provide the best outcomes, again, to the public, to taxpayers, to public policy, to culture, to, to debate, because of what those drivers are. So, you know, if there's, a, as you say, if there's an opportunity to re, reinvent universities, I think those, those drivers and those motivators um, have to change. What I observed as, a, as an education minister for six years, and I, I can only speak from the perspective of education, I can't speak from the perspective of, of medicine and other, and other disciplines, but this huge amount of fantastic work that gets done, and, I, and I've only started to see it now that I've been involved in universities. Ma this massive amount of fantastic work that gets done, I only wish that when I was sitting in the minister's chair for six years, that I actually knew it was, it was happening. Mm -hmm. So there is this big disconnect, you know, universities like this Ferrari spinning its wheels, huge amounts of power, but not going, not going any, anywhere in terms of driving public policy. So. I, this to me was kind of the missed opportunity and, and indeed one of, the, one of the reasons I was interested in getting involved in universities. And I'll just leave with this one example. Um, uh, Professor Andrew Martin at the University of New South Wales is one of the leading experts on student engagement and motivation. One of my priorities when I was minister was around rural and remote education. And if there is, there's probably no greater issue than motivation and engagement. I didn't know that he was a few kilometres down the road sitting at that university, and I would say most people in education don't know either. Mm. 
So there is a real there is a real responsibility, and a real and again, I'm, I'm not sure how you how you do it sort of systematically mm. connecting what universities are doing uh, to guide some of the decision making that happens at a government level because um, I don't think it happens as often as it should. Cynthia, did you want to reflect on that? Thank you very much. Well, thank you for saying that maybe the drivers need to change because I guess, you know, many academics would think that that's the case. I think it's more about the drivers aligning with the core business of what the academic needs to do. And while in some ways that there is that, but on the other hand, I think there's a disconnect. So I think um, that's important. But I also think that um, while there has to be obviously a framework there has to be some flexibility in that. At the moment, it seems like those things that are measures of quality, etc., are either very short-sighted rather than looking at them long-term to see whether actually that has been success or not. Um, and that partly plays into that comment earlier today about politics being sort of very about the short-term rather than the long-term. And I think there has to be leeway for... Um, some high-risk initiatives. It, it seems like the way in which, I guess, the pressures that government is putting on universities is filtering down to the academic as being, these are the core activities which are important, and anything that falls outside of that, well, what is that? But you do have to have things that fall outside that. That's the excitement of academia, that you actually don't know when the next major thing that's going to change the world happens. And I feel, and as, as an academic, there's little opportunity for those things that are in between. So, so, so I, I thank you very much um, uh, again. I, I'm, I think I, we heard during the course of today uh, one thesis put forward that the, gov the government wishes universities to become self-funding private corporations, if I could exaggerate. Um, uh, to make a point that, that, that there has been um, in a number of countries around the world, including Australia and the UK that I, uh, I know quite well, um, a, a progressive withdrawal of the government from direct funding to universities, um, a, a progressive shift in the financial relationship um, that universities have with students. Um, and recently in Australia, not so much in the, not so observable in the UK, a very clear focus on wanting to see strategic research um, and the government, in this country anyway, actively interfering in research um, decisions taken by uh, research councils um, uh, 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 about what's good for the country. Uh, and I, I'm just interested to hear whether any member of the panel has any thoughts about that. They're, they're, if we ask the question what the governments want from universities in the future, it seems to be that they, they want them to fulfill an economic purpose within, the, within um, our society and economy. Um, uh, and they, they want, as a government, they wish to invest less. But uh, I'm just exaggerating to provoke a point. Anyone got a view about that? Uh, yeah, look, look I, I do. I, I, I have no problem with governments having a public interest um, test in terms of the funding that taxpayers' money, uh, or the research that taxpayers' money funds. Mm. Nor do I have a problem with there being a, uh, a national security um, requirement or consideration. I, know, I think these are all legitimate things for, for governments on behalf of taxpayers and of, of, uh, of, of Australians to, to actually 
um, I won't say insist upon, but require. Mm. I mean, what did they knock back? 11, 11 projects against uh, uh, substantially more that were approved. So, and having seen a couple of the ones they knocked back, I'm not surprised they did. Um, you know, governments then ultimately are accountable to the public and they cop a lot of flack about sometimes mm. some of the things that get funded by taxpayers in terms of research. So I've no, I've no problem, I have no problem with that. I think it's responding to public opinion. But I think the public and government are very supportive of research generally and, um, you know, I, I think have a limited interest in intervening in, in what they do, but they have a role in intervening on occasion, so I, I, I can't see what the problem is. Okay, well, we, we might come back to that. Anybody uh, else got a view, yeah, Raj? Uh, yeah. Don, thank you. There is, there is one uh, example, Eric, of um, a, a university. It's in southwest Germany, Baden-Württemberg, which has a cooperative university involving cooperation between industry and the university. Mm -hmm. And I'll talk more about it in, in my section. Mm -hmm. I'm going, to, I'm going to keep moving because I, I like leaving these things hanging there, hoping that you're all ready to jump up um, uh, with your, your questions. And, and, and you won't be surprised in the way I've constructed. I'm now going to ask what the, what's the view of the academy um, on uh, what universities should be. And I've asked Cynthia to provide a lead on that. Cynthia. Well, I guess, you know, we, we strive for excellence, innovation and impact in everything that we do. That, that's what we would hope that we are producing graduates who are outstanding who are, and, and researchers who are leaders in thinking and practice, who are getting the best jobs, getting the best opportunities and who are, who are shaping the future. Um, in terms of, and, and so that, that as a collective, I think we would, academics would see themselves as a collective in producing those graduates. Um, when it comes to research, once again, it's about excellence, innovation and impact. But we probably see ourselves as bits of a puzzle and individual or group success builds the success for the university in terms um, of the research, we would hope. Um, I think it's being able to ask the most important question and being, it, being able to answer it in the most scientific way um, and not needing to compromise the quality of what we produce in our field of research, which sometimes might be very niche or it might be something that's mainstream. Um, and sometimes it looks as those two things are, are dealt with differently um, and different opportunities are available for sort of those core areas compared to some of the more niche and I think, uh, as academics, what's also very important to us and our university is the culture within our university. And we want to have a partnership with students. We want to have a partnership with um, senior administration. We want to have a partnership with um, industry bodies or professional groups that might be relevant for, for our area of expertise. We want to have engagement and we want to um, feel that uh, there's engagement not only from, in all directions really, and I think this, this sort of was a point, for example, when we brought up about lectures and the fact that students don't, um, don't need to come in for lectures and things like that. You know, we would hope that the university is a place 
that students want to come and hang out with, that, that they want to come and hang out here. We want to bump into them in the corridor and sort of converse with them in, in outside the classroom. So I think excellence, innovation and impact is really what we would hope and really the vision for the future. We want to be training students and, and researchers who are creating the new ideas that aren't in practice yet. Eric, if you want to... Um, well, at least I can answer this as a 65-year-old granddad, <laughs> whereas I couldn't answer the other one. The, the, what, if I was an academic, what do I want my university to be? I want it to be a place where I can fly. Mm. That's what I want it to be. Universities are places full of high-talent people. And by the way, we're not the only paradigm for high-talent people. Law firms are exactly the same. Accountancy firms are the same. Advertising agencies where the people doing the absolute day-to-day -day work are also unbelievably talented. And therefore, the environment should be one in which I, I as the academic, feel that I can actually develop and fly intellectually, fly with my research, and that the university I'm in, and with my teaching, and the university I'm in is committed to enabling me to do that. And that's a question of messaging, funding, facilities, um, the other side of the coin is that I don't think the academics can wash their hands of the planning process. You, you, the, the way going forward is for if you want to be involved in planning, please go in and talk to the people that are doing the planning, and please don't just say that they're all hopelessly incompetent leaders. You know, that kind of discourse is unhelpful, and if that discourse is one that runs, what happens is you get taken out of the discussion about future planning, inevitably. It doesn't matter whether it's a university or whatever organization. So there's something about engagement of academics in the future of the university, and there's something about the university ensuring the message to the academics is that we're there to enable them to fly. Thank you. I want to ask, so what needs to be different? Well, not, well, don't, anybody can well, ask that. I was, just, not going to to com I was yeah. just going of to course, comment. Of because I think it's really interesting the response that I gave and the response that you gave because I think that idea of being able to fly, that, that's, that really, that's the essence of it really. But I think um, academics of my generation only really know what they've experienced and they don't even know what the full capabilities are because they may not have experienced it. And these days, there, are, there is a framework of what you need to do, what you need to achieve, you know, what student feedback uh, scores you need to get, how many grants you need to apply for, how many... It, it is very, very structured. And I don't know, you know, this idea of being able to fly and how far you can fly and how far you can spread your wings is really something that's very obvious to the generation of academics coming through. Because all they know is metrics. So you sort of answered partly my question um, about what's getting in the way, what needs to change if, if we're to pursue uh, the goals that you outlined, Cynthia, and um, enable people to fly, as you described, Eric. Uh, any, any thoughts on... Well, uh, what, I think what, the leadership... Because, because I, I'm, I, if I were feeling the vibe of the academic community in the room, it would be... It doesn't feel like that at the moment. Not, no, just, I, I, in, not just in this university, I should say, in general. All over. Yeah. 
I mean, my, my feeling is that, um, I mean, part, part of the problem is a lot of these metrics are brought in from the outside. These, uh, let's be clear that, that, that you're, we are jumping over hurdles that are set by external agencies a lot of the time. I certainly wouldn't be having research excellence frameworks and all that nonsense inside my own university. If, uh, I mean, these things have to be uh, done, uh, are done from the outside. And in my, my ideal is that we should be much looser in management and leadership. Now, there are dangers inherent in that. By definition, there are dangers inherent in that, and it does lead to a slightly more anarchic situation. And mm. if you're running a 750 million pound a year university, being slightly anarchic is slightly worrying. Mm. Um, but you know, the, the the fact of the matter is, the, the fact of the matter is, most of the time you really can't tell people. You know, what metrics do you use for people developing a quantum computer? For crying out loud, mm. right? It takes me half a day to spell quantum. I'm a mm. medic, mm. right? I can't go in and uh, tell the quantum computer uh, people how they should be doing their things or what they're doing. And, I mean, they presented their posters to me and I went and, and you know, I was interested, it, although I couldn't <laughs> understand very much. But uh, by definition, I have to trust them to get on with it. Mm. By, by definition. And of course, that, that's for quite a substantial part of the university. So it, it's, a, it's a difficult compromise between the need for accountability, which I described earlier on in my uh, opening presentation, which is the zeitgeist of, of society, uh, and the fact that actually allowing people a little more freedom leads to a lot more creativity and actually more productivity in the end. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to keep moving, if you'll forgive me, and I hope that, again, people are stimulated to, to want to, to join in. So. Um, I think I read uh, a couple of weeks ago that the Productivity Commission are, are doing um, another review um, into whether or not universities are producing the workforce of the future and the workforce that business needs. Uh, I say another because I'm absolutely certain they did it last time I was in Australia and possibly the first time around that I was in Australia as well. We do seem to keep trying to work out what universities should be doing for our economy and for our business. Uh, and so I've asked Raj if he'd, um, if, if he'd tell us, uh, give us some perspective on, uh, so what's business looking for um, from universities in the future? Thanks, Don. Um, General Eric Shinseki uh, retired after about 38 years of distinguished military service as the 34th um, Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army. And he's famously quoted as having said, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even more. You're going to dislike irrelevance even more. Universities all over the world are, are evolving to stay relevant in a, in a globalized world and to become world-class institutions. But from the perspective of business, um, I want to talk about two examples. I mentioned Baden-Württemberg earlier. And the other example is Israel, which is a country and an environment I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with. Israel is often referred to as a startup nation. And if, if, uh, if you would permit, let me tell you how that came about. When Charles de Gaulle stopped supplying weapons to Israel as a reaction to Israel's decision to start the Six Day War in 1967, Israel decided that it needed to develop weapons from, its, uh, from within rather than to rely on other countries. 
And so a decision was made by then Prime Minister Barak to commence a program whereby a dedicated special army unit was to be responsible for the development of such weapons and new technology. 1,500 principals of all high schools in Israel were called in together with their chief science teacher to a hall in Tel Aviv. They were then asked to name three to six of their best and promising science students in the two upper classes in their respective schools. The army collected 10,000 names that they were then screened and interviewed. 400 of the 10,000 were selected and a subsequent culling exercise reduced that number to 40. The army established a special program for these 40 students. They were to go to university, take multiple subjects, and be mentored by the best science lecturers. They had to commit for five years after they finished university and serve in the army's newly established in-house incubator startup department. This program was the catalyst for Israel's startup nation mentality. The graduates of this unit had the best education, immediate experience in solving and developing cutting-edge technology, and they carried it over to their civilian lives. This is a world where the young and those young in mind are creating their own jobs through startups and innovation. Some of the boards I serve on in Israel have people who are more than 70 years old in physical age, but who think like 20-year-olds. I find this so refreshing and energizing. The other example I mentioned earlier was Baden-Württemberg in southwest Germany. That state has uh, the largest state, it's, sorry, it's the third largest state in southwest Germany with Stuttgart as its capital. The Baden-Württemberg Cooperative State University is unique in Germany, probably in the world, because a, a key success factor for its co-op model is the strong culture of industry-driven cooperation and support. At this university, students must first have an employment contract to apply for admission. The partner companies select their employees slash students, and the university accepts all applicants with an employment contract. Companies pay students during their studies and host the students during their practical training. As part of their three-year program, students alternate between full-time study on campus and full-time work at their sponsoring company, with each study or work term lasting 12 weeks and six iterations of each term in total. Industry drives the integration of applied elements in the educational landscape of this university, which is host to many large companies such as Daimler-Benz, Bosch, Porsche, and SAP, as well as many German Mittelstahn, which are SMEs. This strong industry environment, coupled with a long-standing tradition of links between education and industry, stemming from the German apprenticeship model, supports the work-study method of education through ample availability of meaningful work placements. These companies are also at the leading edge of industrial development and have the resources to involve students in projects not merely to support the education system, but also to develop genuine solutions to real problems faced by those companies. 
The industry orientation is also evident in the profile of its faculty, where about 60% are adjunct industry professionals. And full-time faculty also have extensive industry experience. From the university's experience, a successful core pro program is premised on the culture and tradition of strong industry support, which is not obviously easily or immediately replicable outside that context. Considerable effort will be required by government and institutions to market this value proposition as a model to employers. And employers could see such a model as a good opportunity to acclimatize future employees to the company and a more cost-effective way of training employees while, while at the same time providing good graduate outcomes for the next generation. Thank you. Thank, thanks very much, Raj. A couple of um, models that are very different to the, the kind of situation that currently prevails in Australia, but obviously something to stimulate our thinking about um, how business might see its future relationship with uh, the university sector. Adrian, did you, um, would you like yep. to reflect <coughs> on that or add to? <laughs> no, I just, uh, you know, what a shame the Israelis chose defence industries instead of, you know, curing pancreatic cancer or something like that. So. I think, they moved, I think they moved on to that. To <laughs> no, 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 I know. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think what businesses don't want, although I think there is a trend towards this, is for universities to graduate um, robots for their office towers and their, and their factories. I think as business becomes a bit more transactional, you know, we want people that have these defined skills. I think always the, um, the, be the benefit of universities and university trained graduates is not just the ability to actually perform a function uh, but actually to think about those functions and to be more expansive and innovative around their own work functions um, uh, whilst whilst they're doing it I mean, often the criticism of universities is they're too theoretical you come out of university with a law degree you have no idea how to be a, a lawyer or, or a solicitor you have to go to College of Law to learn how to fill out all the forms, <laughs> uh, which is what I did. But you know, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't qualify you. It didn't give you the experience to walk into a law firm and do conveyancing or or, or 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 start drafting pleadings. But what it did do is it gave you a way of, of thinking as a lawyer, and it taught me. What it taught me was, um, I, I think, how to be. Uh, well, I'd like to think an, an effective politician, an effective communicator a critical thinker, somebody who's willing to challenge the status quo, not just in the law firm I worked in for a few years, but in the subsequent jobs that I've had. And I think that's the strength of what universities do. However, business now is a bit more transactional and they want people to come out and the day they graduate, they want to be able to put, plug them into the office tower and do various standardised things or, you know, plug them into a school and be able to be, to be able to, you know, teach some literacy program straight away. But I just think there's got to be a resistance to that kind of, uh, that kind of development. Thank you very much. Any other panel members want to comment? Well, I, I always think that when you're having these debates about the kind of skills and things that everybody should have at a particular age, that what you should do is ask the audience and everybody in the audience to remember exactly what they were like at 21. I mean, just think about it. And then, you know, you'd, I, you don't start to differentiate 
degrees of your personality until your late 20s, early 30s. So universities can only do so much in that. And there is a huge responsibility on employers then to take the next step in the further developments. It's not, it, it, it's working together around this. It's, uh, I'm sure employers don't want work ready in inverted commas oven-baked graduates, right? But sometimes they do say that, that we're not doing a good enough job. I think we've got to be realistic as to what we can actually do in people who are still transitioning in their, in their life development. No, I, th I think um, one of the things that this highlights, and um, much as I joke about the role of the Productivity Commission in Australia, actually, um, uh, by and large, they're interested in seeing universities develop young people with transferable skills, um, recognising, I think, that um, young people graduating today, uh, it's very likely that 50% of the available jobs haven't even been invented for their working lives at the moment. We don't know what they're going to be. So people clearly have to have um, some skills and adaptability. It's, it's, it's a very challenging balance, though, because you're right. In fact, industry will then criticize universities for not producing graduates that are ready to go um, from day one. And uh, I think we have to try and uh, get the balance right between developing uh, young people who have skills uh, for life that uh, can accommodate significant changes in the nature of work that I could personally confidently predict, um, uh, and uh, young people who are competitive in a tough job market, um, which is, I suspect, what some of our students really uh, are pretty keen to be when they leave us. So, uh, again, a, 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 an interesting set of ideas. I'm going to um, move on to our last subject, and, uh, and then we'll open up to the floor, because I'm very keen to, uh, to get comments and questions from the floor. Um, so our, our final, um, our, our final. So what should universities be? Um, uh, I, I added at the last minute, actually, uh, in part because um, one or two universities in Australia are struggling with questions around how to develop relationships with external organisations who want to give them money, um, uh, and um, with philanthropists and donors and. Uh, I asked Eric to lead on this, um, not because um, I wanted to set him up um, uh, in any way to enter a domestic issue in uh, Australia, but actually Eric um, chaired a very important review for the, for the UK government on philanthropy in British universities uh, and uh, um, uh, oversaw the development of a widely acclaimed report um, uh, on how we can advance uh, philanthropic relationships um, in the UK system and then blow me down much to the embarrassment of all the other vice-chancellors in the UK made a donation to his own university of some substance it has to be said so that he led by example so I couldn't think of anyone I would have asked to have um, led us on this one more than Eric. Eric. Thank, thank you so much Don and can I, <laughs> can I say that I'm coming from the position that uh, Ramsey means Ramsey Street in Neighbours for yes. me. <laughs> uh, so what do uh, philanthropists w w w want a university to be for them to give? Well they want it to be high class. They want great students, great staff, great research or a great social mission. But what they want to do is to give to quality. Mm. Um, they want projects that excite them. They want things that they will feel that their donation will make a difference. 
what, 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 will, what difference will this donation make is actually quite clearly uh, uppermost in their, uh, in their mind. They are not interested in supporting day-to-day -day costs. It is no point in asking a philanthropist to buy the boiler. Um, and uh, you have to accept that you therefore have to produce a suite of projects that will appeal to the people who are going to give you money. They will be quite uh, methodical and uh, about whether the projects are part of your strategic plan. They will want to know that you in the university have planned your priorities and that they're giving to something that's your priority. Um, and uh, they'll want a very professional development office. They'll want an interaction with the university uh, that's professional uh, uh, and sophisticated. Um, I mean, if someone's giving, when someone gives a university $50,000, you ask them for $50,000. When somebody gives the university $30 million, the people in the professional development office are conducting an orchestra over a period of months into years. It is an incredibly sophisticated operation once you're starting with high net worth gifts. Uh, and it's important that the development office knows how to manage that. They want transparency in the gift arrangement. Uh, and they want, they, you know, lawyers will come up on both sides, I can assure you they nearly invariably do when you start getting up to uh, gifts of very substantial amounts. They want to be engaged in what the donation actually does. So, I mean, taking the donation and then not keeping the donor engaged is almost a criminal act, <laughs> not least of which because if you keep them engaged, they may well donate again. Uh, and then finally, by the way, there are two very small words in the English language which we seem really rather reticent to use. They're called thank and you. You know, if somebody gives you a lot of money at your university, please spend a lot of time thanking them. It's not unreasonable. Um, I think the final thing, uh, you mentioned my donation. What it taught me was that a big donation is a family donation. It's not a personal donation. It's a family event. Um, and, uh, you know, so it, that engagement with them, bringing them along and thanking them is actually crucially important. Mm, yeah, thank you. Cynthia, any more? Yeah, I, I'm going to um, respond in a minute. I, I should say I asked Cynthia because yeah. she's now in an independent research institute ah. within the university, having yeah. been in the main part of the university. And all of our independent research institutes probably have a bit more pressure on them to raise money. I yeah, think. and yeah. when I moved over to the research institute on a part-time basis, all took, also took over the role as director of development. So I, I've, I've had a lot more experience in development and philanthropy and donors than the average academic. And it's a shame that the average academic doesn't actually experience that, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I mean, what we found, of course, is with our donors, and, and when I went to the Woolcock, that, that portfolio was not very well developed. And we really had to start, in many ways, from scratch. And we have had some major donations since then. And, you know, it's been about whether the, the individual has the capacity, whether their vision and their, their is aligned with what we do. 
and whether they believe that we can achieve what we set out to achieve. Because we can't guarantee what that answer is going to be when we're asking a research question. So do they believe, do they have faith in us that we can do it? And for our donors, it's an emotional decision. It is not a business decision. It is not looked at like a transaction. So it comes down to relationships and building those relationships as researchers with the potential donors, etc. I think for a university, the relationship starts on day one of lecture one in year one. That is when the relationship starts. Um, and I, my eyes were really open to that um, over the last 18 months because my son is a student at Berkeley. And every second building is there because an alumni donated money. And you can see that the relationship with the student starts at day one. They go through a 10-day immersion into the, into the university, which is led by other students, all the first-year students, all the freshmen come. They get to know the environment, etc., etc. Now, given these students live at that, live around the campus, and I think that's really important because they spend a lot of time on campus. Their whole life is the campus. And when you walk around, it's just amazing. You have all these students that have Cal somewhere on their clothing. I mean, these students, they have bought into that institution. Um, and I think from an academic, I mean, I, you know, before I was aware of this, before I was involved in, in development, before my son went overseas and I experienced this firsthand, as an ac academic, I had no idea. Actually, I did have a little bit of idea because they sometimes used to drag me out in front of industry and say, can you talk about the research that we do so that we can get, you know, get some money from industry. But I, you know, I don't think the average academic really understands what, what role we have to play in building those relationships that will later, when those students are out in the real world, they can look back and say, I got here because of, this, of the foundations that were built when I was at university. And I, th I think that that's uh, a missed opportunity. Thank you very much. Any other members of the panel want to comment on that? Um, if, if not, um, now would be a good time to, uh, to throw it over to anybody um, in the audience who has a question or comment. Someone. Don can I just add one more co yes, comment yes, about yes. the philanthropy? The other thing that I really believe is that um, as an academic, if I'm building a relationship with people that's going to result in a donation, I need to be a donor myself. So I need to believe in my institution and I need to be willing to put money in that belief mm -hmm. and if I can't do that, then there's no hope for what relationships I'm going to build. Thank you. That's challenging. Uh, who had the second mic. Lady Earth, yeah, thank you. Um, Hello, gentleman at the uh, front, my name's yeah. Beck, uh, from representing the Sydney University Postgraduate Research Association. I particularly advocate for research students. And my question is to everybody, but I'm gonna ask uh, Sir Eric first, because I'm gonna refer to a report that came out of the UK in May of this year. Um, you probably know it, the one put by Vitae, which they did for the HEFCE about well-being and mental health of uh, research students. So it's something that we haven't heard discussed today, and it's a 
it's a t certainly a growing problem, and in my role as a student advocate, I hear some very sad stories quite frequently about the mental health of research students. And it seems that with the increase in pressures and a lot of research students have to work and care for families and there's all these different factors involved, that that becomes something that would inhibit research students from being able to fly. And you, you were both talking about, you know, we have to have this space to encourage students to be able to, to fly. So, uh, do you see a role for universities to address these particular concerns for research students? And how would you see them going about doing that? I mean, the answer is that the universities have a, a significant duty of care to the students uh, that, uh, that they have in there. Um, whether, they're research, whether they're undergraduate or postgraduate, they, they have a duty of care. There is a parallel in society, as you know, that mental health Ill illness in, in, that, in that age group is increasing. Not, not just in students, there is a general increase in mental uh, uh, health problems. It, it, this is, the issues around this have exploded in the United Kingdom since I stepped down as Vice-Chancellor. And basically, what's happened is, certainly my own university, which has been right at the center of it, have geared up the support mechanisms like there's no tomorrow. I, th I think there are certain pressures now that there just weren't then. I mean, if, you know, everybody was going to be employed at the end of getting a university degree in 1974. It wasn't an issue. It just wasn't an issue. Nobody kind of, you know, you were going to get a job. And now there's this immense pressure on you to, to, to what's going to happen after you, you know, get out there. And, and so... I think we have to acknowledge that the pressures are different. I think we have to acknowledge that there is some increased psychopathology in society in general, and that in the pressurized environments of doing a PhD, and I've done a doctorate myself, so I know what it's like, that's more, that's more likely to be exaggerated, and we have to provide the support mechanisms to deal with it. And I think we also, and this has been alluded to earlier on, we have to really address if there are issues of bullying and harassment inside the university. Mm. And that means really, really address it. Uh, and uh, I, I think that has risen much higher up the agenda in the UK as well. Thank you. Cynthia, did you want yeah. to comment? I, I think, um, I mean, taking on a PhD student and taking them through the journey to completion is a personal thing, I think. And I think most supervisors would say it is very personal and you end up having a very close relationship with that student and knowing everything about the challenges and the barriers because it's tough and it's life-changing. I think that it's going to get worse before it gets better, unfortunately, because there's a lot of pressure for students to, fi to finish their degrees in a certain time frame now. But more and more students need to work while they're doing their PhDs. And the criteria for getting assistance in the form of the scholarship is a lot harder so if a student decides to go and do a PhD and they haven't got an honours, they've either got to do a master's first, or if they go into a PhD, there'll be no way that they'll be able to get any kind of support. So I think as supervisors, we need to be very, very strategic in how we um, help our students to get through that. And we have to be creative and we have to choose the projects very carefully and we have to take account of are they going to be able to get support or are they going to be working a certain amount of hours a week? And I think it's very complicated. Thank you. Um, somewhere up here. There we go. Thank you. Uh, my name is Tarek. I would 
just like to uh, share my experiences after studying in several different countries, the United States, obviously, Australia. Uh, I did my master's degree there, Switzerland, Argentina. Um, the best universities, I think, they educate, obviously. And we have to look into the meaning of this word education. It comes from the Latin word ducere, to, uh, it also has relation to the word induce or to beaten. So universities, I feel um, the point of the university for the student first should be uh, to gain um, the skills to use inductive and deductive reasoning. So that even if they come out and they don't get employment, they can still go out into the world and forge a way for themselves. Um, so that's, that's all I would like to Thank say. You. Thank you. I do um, just make an observation as we get the microphone over here, please. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, um, my name is Oliver Damien, and I have a startup working on lifelong learning, a platform for lifelong learning. And my question is, I'm curious to hear the panel's opinion on this view that the services that the universities are offering are being um, unbundled in the same way that services used to you get from newspapers have been unbundled. Like in a newspaper, you, you used to get editorials, dating, um, ads, and, uh, classified ads. It, they've now been unbundled. And if you look at the university, you could, in a way, look at it as providing different services. Like you're making good citizens, you're making good thinkers. That's one service. You're also signaling to employers that anyone who went through the rigor of passing the entrance exams, they can follow rules, so they'll make good workers. It's being unbundled, so that's the view that should it be, should it, is it better if they're unbundled or is it so that it's more sizable? Because you were talking about you get a bigger budget because it's one big budget to one big institution. What if there's smaller institutions that have specific, like you know, se se separating the sec sacred from the profane? Thank you. I, I, I'm going to just add to that before I ask the panel to comment on it. Um, I'll put a, my twist on that is, it d does our existing conception of faculties and disciplines get in the way of the future evolution of universities? Because one extension, I absolutely take the point that you're, you're making, one extension of that is that we have this inbuilt rigidity that is somewhat resistant to, uh, to, to, to change in the form of our faculties and disciplines in universities. Is that, a, is that an issue or not? So please, anybody who would like to comment. Um. Well, first of all, I really like the idea of, uh, I haven't come across the sense of unbundling, so that's a nice, interesting thing for me to take away and think about. And as you were talking about it, what I, what I, said, what I thought is, well, you know, what's happened is we now have very, very, very big institutions. And actually, you know, managing the thing as an unbundled whole is really almost impossible. If you see what I mean, just the simple size of it. So that we need to divide up, in the very best sense, business activities so that they can be brought down to manageable kind of sizes. But it does lead to a sense of, of what you've called unbundling. Um, and the other thing is that, I mean, I didn't go to business school, right? But uh, one of the things I've taken away, I was on the advisory board for Chicago Booth School of Business, is that basically you can make any structure work, mm -hmm. right? So the key question is, do you need a structure? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you tell me how you run 
a one billion pound a year business with you know, 6,000 staff, 28,000 students, a billion pounds worth of estate, right, and multifactorial, multi, multiple interfaces mm. without some kind of structure to do mm. it. It's just, it's just not possible. Um, and, and I, you know, and so if it's not departments and faculties, it's got to be something else. Sure. Oh, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that uh, we dig. I'm asking whether it's, uh, so I'm not suggesting there's no structure. I'm asking whether the conception we have of existing uh, faculties and uh, departments gets in the way. Please, Cynthia, yeah. No, please, don't, don't wait for me. Yeah, just, yeah. just jump in. Well, I don't know Adrian, Raj, be. feel free to jump in at any yeah, time. I, I don't yeah. know about um, sort of the bigger picture of debundling as a concept, mm. but I think um, it has happened for the academics. It, you know, our job has be, been debundled because now if you, if, when you're going for promotion, you don't have to be doing, you don't have to excel or what, whatever the you know, criteria is in terms of research and teaching and governance and leadership, you can choose an area in which you want to be, you know, considered your main area. So, you know, in a way, we already are starting to have that option of not being holistic, having holistic expertise, but being able to go down a particular path. So I don't know how that, that's a bit distant to what you're talking about. You're sort of talking about it probably at the other end. But I think that um, from the academic's life, that's, that's a reality, it has happened. And I don't know what the impact of that's going to be. I remember attending, being invited to an opening of a new law school. And the minister for law of, of this state began his speech by saying, how many lawyers were unemployed after, after finishing law school and how delighted he was to be opening another law school <laughs> in the state. Um, I, I think there is so much overlap between particular universities, even in one state, that someone needs to step back and think about whether or not they really need to have a law faculty in that particular university in that state. Um, the thing I, is, I, I might say, um, I would add to that, do, do, do we need another medical school in Australia? Yeah. Um, no, really, I mean, we, we seem to, I, I left the country for a couple of years and blow me down, there were a few new medical schools when I came back. Um, so I, I would add to that question by saying yes, yeah. uh, and it's got to be one in the country, mm. because, you know, you graduate a lot of doctors and I would be guessing that most of them don't go and practice further than 10 kilometres from where we're sitting. Hi, I'm actually a final year undergraduate student from business school and I've been reflecting what um, my, um, mainly I feel I regret what I've done in the last two years, but um, my point is that um, I've been interested in the way that, from what I've seen of how the business school in particular runs things and why I'm dissatisfied with my experience. I mean, well, that's a bit strong, but um, well, basically my, my biggest regret is I didn't take enough personal initiative um, to do, for example, my own research, to use the resources that not necessarily provided by the business school to develop myself. And I think that from the perspective of the school, I think it's completely reasonable what they're doing. Um, 
and it's inevitable, I guess, in a way. And I, I think that um, students like me who are somewhat disinterested, I mean, uninterested in studies, I think, would do well to take more initiative to go beyond, um, say, their faculty. It feels to me like you're loading all the responsibility on yourself, and I, oh, I just well, wonder just whether there's more. Whether is there more that you would you could have reasonably expected from the university in those circumstances? Well, I did at the start. I did have some expectations of mm. the university, but then I think business school in particular, the way that it operates, and um, I mean, it's the, the specialization that I it it doesn't actually. Well, there's a bit of a long story behind this. I'm not going to go into mm, that. Sure. Um, but, yeah, I think that there are some small sections of the student um, cohorts that are inevitably going to be not happy in their mm. field and would do well to take more initiative to go mm. and do some more um, cross-disciplinary stuff. So mm. they might need to stay mm. library resources, things like mm. that. Thank you very much. I, I guess one of the problems is that knowledge no longer carries the same premium it used to. Technology has made knowledge very accessible. And what is more valuable today, I think, revolves around how someone applies knowledge in real life. And it's the skill set which is valued. IBM Watson can do many of the, uh, most of the work that a first-year lawyer can do or a second-year lawyer can do. And so... It is, it is that skill set, that's those soft skills that, that I think are more important. Mm. Uh, being innovative, being creative, being resilient, um, I think is more important than, than some of these. Uh, important as black letter law might be, um, it, is, it is the application of these soft skills that is more important. And I think the other side of that puzzle is, um, be, as an academic, being engageable. Um, and spending time with students. And I think that's where technology sometimes takes away that human interaction. And I think that that is critical. You can't undervalue the, the um, you know, five or ten minutes that you might spend with students who come and ask you a question after the lecture. I mean, you know, you, you just can't undervalue how important that is. And I think that's, that's something as well. Thank you. A gentleman at the front here, then we'll go up to you. Oh, um, I sort of a similar age group as uh, Sir Eric, and um, I just wanted to uh, maybe put a historic um, slant on this discussion. And uh, as, uh, I suppose, as a professional officer at uh, University of New South Wales, I did some work on NMR. In, it was around 1975, we did some uh, imaging of uh, cancers in, in rats or something in, a, in the machine they had available at the time. Maybe about uh, or 20 years later, I actually went to the, uh, a lecture given by the Nobel Pr uh, Prize uh, laureate who um, developed NMR. And uh, he was 86 years old. And um, sort of it, it, it took almost 50 years before his work was uh, finally recognised, and that's when uh, the instrument was now called uh, magnetic resonant imaging. And I think this ties in, you know, this 50-year 50 50 year gap of making making a discovery and uh, then seeing it be, be mm. being turned into something extremely uh, useful is 
relates into the politics of what's happening there too. Because that research that that Nobel laureate did such a long time ago, um, nobody really appreciated it then. It took that 50 years. And that, that means too that it takes 50 years for the public to appreciate a particular discovery. I think it also ties in with, with, with your uh, concern about how um, expectations of a young person coming into doing this research is um, it's quite daunting and, and the you know getting the scholarships working uh, raising a family while, while this is occurring um, you know this this kind of support is uh, it, it ties into with the apprehension of the student as well but I think that's just putting a historical slant on the, the problem. But also uh, I think uh, is a very good illustration of um, how tricky it is to predict what research will actually deliver social and economic benefit in what time frame and, uh, and some of the dangers uh, in, in, that, in that domain. There's a young guy there. I, I'm, what I'm going to do is just take, uh, I think I've got, I, I can see about four hands. I'm just going to take them all if that's okay and then I'm going to give the panelists each one last shot and I hope that they'll be able to uh, um, respond to, um, to any of the, uh, the comments that are raised. But I do want to hear as many voices as possible from the floor, um, and then we'll come back to the panel. Please. Hi, uh, I'm a recent graduate. Uh, I recently spent a year thinking about social values in education. Um, is it that universities don't have to reinvent themselves, but actually we need a new educational institution, have universities as a concept originally entitled autocracy has actually run its course with, you know, the change of society. Do we need a new institution? Thank you. Please. I'm just going to run round and we'll, please. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, my name is Tibor Mon. I run from the Department of Philosophy here at Sydney University. Um, there's so much to say. Uh, <coughs> but but uh, please be brief. I'll be brief. <laughs> yes. uh, I'll have I'll say a little bit to each of you. Uh, Raj, the comment that you said about how you would go to, a Jewish, uh, to an Israeli school and say to the students, there are two questions. For the first question is not that they ask why, they ask are we buying or selling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, that's why they're an innovative country, that's why they're a startup country. Uh, Adrian, from the point of view of government, let me ask you uh, the government wants to fund and seizes duty funding primary school and secondary school. Why doesn't it see its duty funding tertiary education? There seems to be a disconnect there. I don't know why we don't do that. The government seems to think differently. Um, for the uh, point of view of uh, uh, philanthropy, I have several acquaintances who were donors at the university here and are no longer because they couldn't see value for what they were doing and they didn't know what they were donating to. I've recently had a chat to the people in the admin building about philanthropy, and uh, they said, we need to go out and find money. But they didn't know what they wanted the money for. They said, oh, if we got some money, we'd think of something to do with it. But that's exactly the wrong way. As Sir Eric said, if you want, you, you need excellence. And if you provide the excellence, the money will follow. It may follow decades later, but you've got to provide the excellence now and then hope like hell that the money will come back later. 
You can't start the other way around. Looking for money is exactly the wrong thing to do because you'll never get it. Mm. Um, I, okay, I I'm going to rush you on now, if that's all okay, right. Yep. all right. Okay. Anyway, there's yeah. so many more things. I'll, yeah. I'll talk to you all later. Yeah, great. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Please. Thank uh, you. Uh, yeah. Ivan Kennedy from yeah. the Sydney Institute of Agriculture. I, when I came to this university, I was given a two-line two curriculum and a box of chalk. And it took me 20 or 30 years to get to a stage where I could have a centre like Cynthia has talked about, that attracted donations. But the, the key thing, though, was to have a diversity of opportunity and in a dynamic framework where the scholars themselves could create the situation interacting with society at large. Um, I just won't... So I guess I'm against rigid structure. OK, uh, thank I you. I think I the university of the future yeah. should be a dynamic diversity. Thank you very much. Um, this gentleman, sorry, you, you're next. But I'm just trying to direct the mic far, as fast as I can. Uh, <laughs> my name's Ty. I'm from Western Sydney University, a graduate of this university. And it's interesting to me that this is the question being posed and we're looking outside of universities to answer that question or to give us an answer to that question. I suppose what I'm interested in is, is the extent to which your views about the university are framed by the scholarship about the university and the scholarship of higher education. I'm surprised, looking at the panel we've got, I would have expected to see someone who's a scholar of universities or a scholar of higher ed to add some historical weight to the discussion and to, to, to remove us from the sense of presentism mm. that is evident in this conversation. Mm, okay. Thank you for your comment. Thank you. Um, uh, okay. One last one at the back. So, there. firstly, I want to yeah. apologise for yeah. dropping this question yeah. now, but um, I think one of the recurring themes of the discussion has been that the financial incentives behind higher education and the actual outcomes that we want from higher education seem to be disaligned. So, I suppose the ten trillion dollar question is: How would you go about realigning those incentives? Mm, thank you. Last comment, and then I'm going back to the panel. Thank you all, by the way, for those comments. Are we? we you, <laughs> scholar of higher education. <laughs> I'm really sorry we didn't have you on the panel then. <laughs> Please. Um, so I'm in a bit of a jiffy at the moment. Yeah. Um, one of my academic supervisors has been with the university for seven years. In that time when he's been in the university in the first year and third year, he's introduced a new course where students are able to actually go into the industry and work on real industrial projects and that culminates into a presentation and so far from that subject we've gotten a lot of good um, um, feedback about it. My issue is that about a month or so ago he received a termination notice and we've been trying to get together, um, we've been collating letters of testimonials, we've been involving the union but at the end of the day we have no idea why he was suddenly just shown the door. And so who is um, pushing to get more involvement in the industry? And if we do have this sort of um, resume and um, portfolio of this person, why was it not enough for him to stay on within the university? Thank you. Um, I'm really... You've got 30 seconds because we're going to run over time. Is that long enough for you to say what you have to say? All right. All right, okay. Uh, Ruth Newman, Macquarie University. I actually had a question mm -hmm. um, about the implications.
government, uh, that there was relationships between the government uh, and academics and universities in this country. Um, it's been a theme that's been there throughout today, and mm. we have our former mm. minister who made some comments. Um, my observations as an academic, um, and in comparison with my colleague editors, is that in Australia we have a very strong divide between them and us, mm. between uh, government and academia. And I'd just be interested to see whether that's actually expected that's held from a government point of view as well. Mm. Thank you very much. Th those are all really great um, questions and observations. Thank you very much. I'm sorry it was a bit rushed, but I wanted to hear as many voices as possible. I've now told the panel they all have a chance for a last word, um, uh, and we'll just run. Do you mind, Eric, if we start with you and just run towards me, if that's okay? Right. I mean, I, I think, I, I do think, I, I slightly bridle at the idea that there's no innovation in universities. Actually, there are different types of universities. I'm the vice chair of a university, a new university in Hereford that is not going to have lectures, it's not going to have seminars, and it's going to do the whole of its engineering teaching around problems brought in by industry. That's innovation. That's the kind of stuff that we can think about doing. Uh, and so universities are developing and they are differentiating, but they will still be big and important things in society. Thank you very much. Exemplary in timing. Cynthia. Um, I also agree. I think there's a lot of innovation in universities, but I think the one thing we also need to remember is that a lot of the success of universities is run on goodwill, the goodwill of every single person that's in that university, people that are working with people in that university. So I think it's really important to continue to provide an environment where people want to show that goodwill and do want to do that extra. Thank you. Adrian. I don't think there is a disconnect between, or not a, not a deliberate disconnect between government and, and universities. Uh, I think sometimes, I mean, there, there is a strong connection between government and um, consulting companies, KPMG and Boston Consulting Group and others. Of the 15 million that was spent last year by the Department of Education in research, only a couple of million was spent at university. A much bigger component was spent at those consulting groups. But, you know, they're in the door every day uh, with government Universities are a bit more are, are a bit seem to be a bit more of a distant um, distant institution. So I don't think it's any lack of interest. I've never heard a minister or anyone in government say we're not interested in universities or we don't want to have anything to do with them. Which kind of goes to your question too. I, I don't think there is some. Uh, you, I think governments are interested in supporting and funding universities, but they're trying to do a few things. They're trying to increase the number of students who can access it. So you might say it should be free. But if it was free, far fewer students would have access to, I mean, hex I'm talking about. If it was free, far fewer, there would be far fewer places available. So I think this is kind of the balance. I don't think there's any agenda by governments. It would be a crazy agenda to say we want to put an end to universities or we want to stomp on their, on their heads. I mean, this university, like most, have expanded considerably, both in facilities and in the number of students uh, over the last uh, several years. Uh, that's both due to funding but also due to changed government's arrangements that has allowed increased enrolments. Thank you very much. Ron. Thank you, John. <clears throat> um, with so many academics in the room and being a, a former academic myself, I thought I'd make this comment. That universities need to create an environment where junior faculty can pursue basic research in their disciplines, in part to build their reputation, with senior faculty engaged in large, larger scale interdisciplinary research 
particularly in projects that address the issues we have to cope with, such as in telemedicine, in healthcare, in aging, in agribusiness, in uh, water and wastewater treatment, uh, new models for generating power, cyber attacks, and so forth. These are all areas where we can build new or better research capability and have a more meaningful impact on society. And one closing comment in response to the first comment we heard this evening. Uh, in North America, uh, institutions played a significant amount of attention to ensure that their students were well grounded in the humanities, um, social sciences and the arts so that, they can, so that they may better understand the broader social and cultural impact of their work even if they were in science and technology majors. Thank you, and of course I shall abuse my position uh, um, having the microphone now just to um, say a couple of words. Um, I'm very selective, I have very selective hearing, so I, I heard certain things um, above all others, but I, I suppose the one thing I was left with in, in um, uh, listening to our, our colleagues on the panel and uh, hearing the feedback um, from, uh, from the audience this evening is that universities still have a bit of a job to do in raising their visibility in the wider community um, in communicating with our various constituencies, including and especially our student population, and engaging more meaningfully outside um, um, of our uh, so-called ivory towers. Uh, we, we need to explain what we do better um, uh, and why we do it in the way we do it. Um, I, that said, I don't think we should be shy about our achievements. I don't think we should um, in any way be uh, afraid to be accountable um, uh, to citizens and taxpayers. Indeed, uh, I'd have to say my recent experience in the, in, in the UK where uh, universities were required to demonstrate their impact on society um, and the economy was an extraordinarily positive experience and I think has greatly strengthened the position um, of universities in the UK and significantly pr protected um, government investment in research. So we have nothing to be afraid of, but we need to do it better, um, it, seems, it seems to me, to communicate with our various constituencies. So that was my final word. Um, uh, my last duty um, is simply uh, to say thank you very much uh, to, uh, to our panelists, to Cynthia, to Raj, uh, to Adrian and to Eric, um, thank you very much for covering such a broad range of issues uh, and being so responsive to the audience. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.